You are listening to the Dream for Others podcast with Naomi Arnold, episode 13. Dream for you, dream for me, dream for others. And now your host, award-winning life and business coach, Naomi Arnold. Hi there. Thank you for joining me on the podcast today. Those of you who have been listening since the first season, before I moved to these solo episodes, will know that I used to do a long-form interview format on the show. So I got to speak to some really amazing people. And I thought now that we have switched gears a little that I might reshare some of those interviews with you just in case you have joined in more recent times and didn't get to hear them or even if you wanted to hear some of them again but listen to them in more digestible blocks. So today I'm going to reshare part of my interview with one of my favorite authors, Dr. Anita Heiss. Now, before I do that, though, I wanted to let you know that if you are located in central Queensland, Dr. Heiss will be visiting Yapoon in May. I am on the executive committee for a local women's networking group called Busy Women Inc. And we're bringing Dr. Anita Heiss to town for some community events in the area, one of which everyone is invited to. You can find the details about that event under the events tab on the Busy Women Inc. Facebook page or under the events tab on my Facebook page as well. So if you're local to me, go and check that out. I would love to see you there. Otherwise, let's jump in and listen to a segment of the interview I did with Anita, which was mostly around how she uses writing and speaking and other ways to raise consciousness and how you might be able to too. For those who aren't as familiar with you and your work as me, would you mind just introducing us a bit to what you do and how you came to be doing it? Of course. So um, I actually started writing back in 1992, which some of your listeners may only have been very young then. Um, And I was writing comic scripts for Streetwise Comics. And I wasn't very, very good at that because in a comic, an educational comic, there's one message per page. And um, I started, so I tried very hard, but I'm rather verbose with my writing. So I did that for two years. But while I was doing that, I started writing, doing some journalism and writing columns and so forth, where I could use a bit more flair and use, you know, a a larger word count. So in 1994, I quit that job at Streetwise to write a book. I didn't know that I would write more than one book. I didn't know that I'd be talking to you today, having published almost 20, I think it is. But I wrote a book called Sacred Cows, and really it was a reflection uh, of my time at university, uh, a reaction to my time at university, what all the books on the shelf there were written by non-Aboriginal people. And some of those people had not even been to Australia. So like all the shelf books I got off the shelf uh, about anything to do with Aboriginal people 
and Aboriginal Australian history that involved Aboriginal society failed to use Aboriginal voices. So I thought I would write a book about Australian society, looking at Australian sacred cows like Skippy and Vegemite in the backyard barbecue in a satirical way just to make the point that uh, we are bicultural people, but even me writing that kind of book had to engage with, with Australians to make that an authentic piece. So that was the springboard for me into writing. I didn't know I'd write another book, but I was then invited by Scholastic Australia to uh, write a novel, a historical novel called Who Am I? The Diary of Mary Talents about the stolen generation. So I wrote that around the same time that I was doing my PhD on Aboriginal literature and publishing. And, and then they rest, as they say, is history. You seem to have, even though you write in a whole heap of different contexts, there seems to be like an underlying theme through a lot of it where you are trying to raise consciousness on something or play some part in creating, I guess, change or awareness. That's absolutely right. The way you've summed that up is right. I want to do a few things. And I started writing because I wanted to write Aboriginal stories, Aboriginal voices, Aboriginal women in particular, into the Australian literary landscape in a, in a way that we had not been written before. So, for instance, I wrote the first commercial women's novels uh, with Aboriginal characters and so forth. And, and that was writing us into a space where we were you know, women with careers and women who were educated and women who had families and women who wanted relationships and had friendships just like other Australian women. So breaking down those stereotypes for a start is what I wanted to do, but also within those stories. So they can be stories set in Sydney and Melbourne and Canberra and Brisbane and so forth, but weaving through those stories of relationships and friendships themes of black deaths in custody, themes of human rights like the NT intervention, looking at Indigenous intellectual property in the arts and so forth and using my characters to have uh, dialogue and have storylines that are real for myself and the women in my in my world. Uh, I was the first person in my family to graduate, go to university and graduate from university and also the first Aboriginal person uh, to graduate with a PhD from the University of Western Sydney. So I feel a huge sense of responsibility to use the platform that I now have through education and the, the privilege that comes with having a platform to try and make changes in a way, in, in, in some way through the arts. My mother was born on an Aboriginal mission in Cowra. My grandmother was one of the stolen generations and was in service. Um, and so I feel that we still have a long way to go um, in terms of change in this country and that writing and using, whether it's commercial women's fiction or memoir or children's books, it is one way of making this nation think and, and making them think about what their role is in terms of making social change as well. Mm, I love that. When I was reading Barbed Wire and Cherry Blossoms, I just loved seeing how even though something is fiction and, and a novel that you were kind of raising my consciousness there of what it was like to be an Aboriginal person living in Cowra with, you know, on a mission with less rights than those who were in the prisoners of war camp nearby, for example. Thank you. The bar barbed wire and cherry blossoms is obviously a story that's very close to me mm. because of my family history there. Um, and it's interesting because I had the idea for that novel when I was in Hawaii at um, Pearl Harbor. And I, it made me think about the way in which 
history had been documented in our country and obviously history is often documented by uh, the coloniser as opposed to the colonised. And I was thinking about Cowra and, and what I knew about the breakout and none of it had actually talked about anything that's been written or, or uh, documented around the Cowra breakout and so forth. And, and largely World War Two had talked about Aboriginal involvement in the war for a start. So there were Wiradjuri men from Cowra, from the town of Cowra, who were in World War One, World War Two, but also the fact that, you know, 4.5 or 4.6 miles in a direct line from that POW camp was another camp of Aboriginal people where my mother was living at the time of the breakout, who, as you mentioned, had lived under the Act of Protection. There was an assimilation policy at the time. And Aboriginal people lived with fewer rights, less access to nutritional food, less access to uh, medical supplies and so forth than Japanese POWs. And don't get me wrong, we 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 provided the care that we should have provided to prisoners of war under the Geneva Convention, and, and that's a good thing. But what most people don't know is that, you know, they know that story, but they don't know that this other story. And for me, it was important to say, well, Australian readers need to understand the complete story around that town at that time, and it's a town that quite proudly recognises its um, relationship and the ongoing reconciliation that it has with Japan that doesn't necessarily have with its local Indigenous people. So um, that novel, again, <laughs> used this, uh, you know, the build-up to a love story to, to drive that story because I wanted people like yourself, Naomi, and women in book clubs and women who lie on the beach and, you know, on the coast and women who catch trains to work who want to read about um, relationships and strong female stories but may not pick up a book or may not have thought to pick up a book by an Aboriginal author before with Aboriginal themes but will buy a book and read a book and talk about a book that actually talks about the human condition and the frailties of relationships relationships in families, but also male and female relationships. And obviously in that novel, we, we're looking at a young girl, Mary, who's a Wiradjuri girl, and a Japanese POW, Hiroshi, thrown into a situation as war does, makes people do and say and behave in, in, in quite extraordinary ways, but also to make Australian readers understand the humanity behind caring for each other, particularly in a time of war, and that race, in, in, in the instance of love in particular, love knows no boundaries, least of all race. Yeah, you can feel yourself really connecting with those characters and what they're going through, and then it often triggers you to go research further afterwards about the realities. I really hope so. And and it's interesting because, you know, you write a book, you, the authors focus on the characters and the dialogue and wanting to um, have a rich story and, 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 a, and a, a, story, a plot that will make readers want to keep reading. But you can't control the way a reader reads your work because we I write through a lens and everybody reads through it their own particular lens. And uh, when I wrote Titters, which was set in Brisbane, you know, I had people read it as a love letter to Brisbane. I had, um, you know, people read it in different ways. There's five main characters. People engage with a different character. When I wrote Manhattan Dreaming, which was a much more fun novel to write, I had journalists say to me that they went, they then went and started researching all the artists that I mentioned in that novel, which was not my intention at the time of writing it. My intention was to say, oh, I want to showcase some artists and I want to use real, living, breathing, successful um, Indigenous artists across art forms. I had no idea that, that they may then 
win be uh, become the subject of greater stories, which is a, which is a bonus. Oh, that's great, isn't it? Yeah, and I think I heard or read somewhere as well that you do that deliberately now, and you also like feature real places and and things like that too to help local communities or businesses. It is true. I'm a method writer, so I get into character, and I, you know, I, I source, I research, I find out where, where would my character eat? Where is if I'm going to Wagga? Where's the best steak? And where's the best coffee in town? And so forth. Um, and and quite frankly, Naomi, it's easier than making up places. <laughs> yeah, I bet. And also, for, so for instance, Paris Dreaming, the, the, the main, one of the main characters is from Daniloquin, and I, I went to Daniloquin a couple of times and, and loved the town and, I, you know, found out it's the home of the, the, the world youth muster. I mean, who would have known? But very strong reconciliation group there, great community radio. Or, and I just thought, you know, there's lots of people who will never go to Daniloquin, never know that this is a great town in, you know, country, New South Wales. But also, you know, character. One of the main characters was from um, Moree, and it was sort of like, how do I put Moree on the map? How do I put, you know, Gamilaroi Mob on the map? How do I put Danny on the map? How do I place Aboriginal people in an international context where we currently exist, like at the Musée de Bromley in Paris? And I try to weave it all together because also, most Aboriginal people will not get to Paris, but I want them to know that our art is sits in an international context and framework and we are recognised and appreciated and valued at that level as well, even though we may not be able to get there. So geography, I think, is very important. So the two key elements for my all my novels are setting and characters and, and, and they drive the story, the place. And, and I want, I would never write about a place that I haven't been to. When I run writers' workshops, I say, like, don't write about a place you haven't been to if you can't describe the smells and the sounds and the people and so forth because your readers will know. They will know if you are not being authentic in the story. As somebody who obviously is really passionate about using your platform and your talents to be of use to others, I just find it incredibly inspiring to see how you're doing that through your writing but also through your speaking as well. I think it helps open up people's minds too about the different ways that they can take some personal leadership or or do something themselves outside of what we've been taught, which is sometimes giving money, you know, and protests and, and things that are important. But there are other ways too, and you're showing that. Thank you. And you're right, there are there are lots of ways. I mean we all have we all in our own way have a capacity to make change. As you say, whether it's um, the power of protest, and there is power in being in a unified space, uh, in a united space with a unified voice, taking to the streets. I think there is it does a lot for us to feel as individuals that we are not alone in a particular cause, whatever that cause is. If we have the capacity to give, the, you know, the cost of a cup of coffee or more to a particular cause, then we can do that. If it is using your platform as a writer or so forth, it's it's that as well. Um, most recently I got to speak, I was um, fortunate to have a platform at the Business Chicks International Women's Day event in Melbourne and uh, next uh, alongside the amazing Gillian Triggs and um, Jules Allen. So I used that platform to talk about the women in history who have been role models for me and who I've tried to model myself on in terms of pressing for progress, which was the theme, as you would know, for International Women's Day this year. So I chose to talk about 
all the women in history that obviously they've passed. So there were women like Udra and New Knuckle who wrote the, the Charter for Aboriginal Rights back in 1972. So I talked about her and her role as an activist and author and illustrator and so forth, who over the course of her life penned 400 pieces of writing as a role model to me as a writer but also an activist. And that charter is as relevant today as it was back then. I also talked about Barangaroo. And interestingly, I asked the women in the room to show a show of hands, please, for those who had heard of Barangaroo. And, you know, maybe 50 hands went up. And I asked those same women, how many of them knew that, that Barangaroo was actually a woman? Because they all know about the precinct, you know, the funky new precinct with eateries and bars and a nice place to live down on the harbour in Sydney. But very few people understand that that precinct is named after a matriarch who demonstrated a sense of humanity at a time when Aboriginal people were treated with anything but humanity, when and actually women in, were treated in fun, barbaric ways. So uh, I use that platform to, to raise awareness about this woman who that precinct is named after because if your listeners go and Google Barangaroo, what they'll find is a list of entries about the precinct. And I also talked about Aunty Ruby Lane for Guinnaby who back in the day taught me about being your authentic self. Now, you exist in, in a space, as I do, where women in recent years have talked about be your authentic self and, and so forth. These aren't new concepts. You know, these women like Ujiru and Barangaroo and Ani Ruby Langvaginabi, they were pressing for progress. They were making change. They were being the, their authentic selves before there were hashtags and campaigns and so forth. So I hope, you know, just from my 25 minutes on that platform, that some women walked out of that room thinking, I need to learn more about these women. Or they saw in the women that I talked about ways in which they could model themselves or some elements of their lives in terms of pressing for progress as well. Absolutely. And just what you've shared there just with me as one person, you've already inspired me to go and learn more about them too. Oh, well, my work here is done. <laughs> so I'm sure you had power on the, mass on the masses too. And I noticed in your TED Talk as well, you did an amazing job sharing some of these stories as well in terms of relating back to your books too, but you used a lot of humour as well, which it seemed the audience were loving. The TED Talk was possibly the most difficult public performance I've had to do because, you know, you have to do it all without notes. Mm. But mm. it was one way for me to say we are the same as human beings and the more that we focus on what connects us as human beings, what makes us the same, particularly as women, and our desire to have companionship, uh, our friendship groups, the relationships we have with women, that's what makes us the same as women. You know, we, we all have periods, we, we have everyday experiences that does not alter regardless of geography or socioeconomics uh, and so forth, but remains the same just because we we share a gender. And the more that we focus on what connects us in, this, in the light of, of what makes us the same, then it becomes easier to talk about the things that, that are different and it becomes easier to celebrate difference. And so that TED Talk was really about sameness. And for me, I think that when we have a personal sense of peace in that space, then it leads to a greater sense of communal peace. Yes, yeah. And I I personally think as well that you really showed that in just the way that you showed up in, and presented that TED Talk in, in what you shared, but also the little bits that you were adding with humour and there appeared to be anyway a real connection with the audience. And They were a good audience. <laughs> we'll take them everywhere. <laughs> yeah, good. And then you're also writing memoirs as well and oh, 
just about every genre you can think of you've you've been involved in. You've done some kids' books. I've <laughs> been involved in kids' books as well. But I just finished reading Am I Black Enough for You, which you break down some of the stereotypes there of what is it is associated with what it means to be Aboriginal. So anyone listening, please read that. It was great. With Am I Black Enough for You, can I just say that the stereotypes I wanted to tackle there was that there's no there's no such thing as pan-Aboriginality. We are diverse peoples and we identify as such. And I want people to understand that and, and that the bulk of the Indigenous population lives in urban areas. You know, 30% of Aboriginal people live in urban areas. The greater Western Sydney has the largest concentration of Aboriginal people in Australia. And I think when we need to start bringing back what we're, or reconsidering what we see in the media, because what we see in the media is, all, is often images of disadvantage, which are real, but we also need to be looking at the way in which we are kicking goals in our community. I don't just mean on the football field. So, at, you know, Emma Black Enough for you was really saying, let's let's challenge some of those stereotypes that you see of us every day. We are not, you know, one voice. We are not one pan-Aboriginal Australia. We are a diverse peoples. We live in urban centres. We are highly educated in some areas. We are running our own businesses and we are international in our works and our travel. So I was just trying to, you know, challenge the way people see us every day and say if you if you see this person who is educated and articulate and lives in the city and and doesn't fit into that box are they black enough for you am i black enough for you because you have been we i have been created into i've been created through a frame of someone else's lens yeah well you're not indigenous people are asked about blood quantum so in the ted talk so i ask you put your hand up if you are to identify as australian and you know 90 odd percent of people put their hands up you know if you go overseas what you say i'm australian put your hands leave your hands up if you have some other heritage english irish japanese chinese malaysian american whatever and a large percentage of people put their hands up because um you know over 50 percent of australians have parents um or grandparents born overseas and what's interesting is you never hear australian white australians say oh yes i'm half caste australian or i'm quarter caste australian because my parents were born in in greece you do not hear that language that westerners use for indigenous peoples the world over they have a completely different language and set of um, terminal phrases and terminology they use for indigenous peoples that they don't use for themselves Mm -hmm. yeah you also talk about in that book am i black enough for you you say that you're often people often assume that you're a walking talking encyclopedia on everything Aboriginal, and they're often invited to speak on things that you're maybe not necessarily an expert on. Uh, all the time. And from the 90s when I was at uni, I'd be saying, oh, can you come and give this lecture on Aboriginal feminism? I said, well, my area is actually literature. Oh, yes, but you're a woman. I said, well, there are experts in the field and and, and not to go into it, in, into this um uh, on your podcast, but we saw a classic example last week on Sunrise where we had people with no experience in the field of, you know, community organisations, community health, working with Aboriginal young people, whether it's sexual assault or child welfare, having a conversation, a very serious conversation, a very damaging conversation that would impact Aboriginal people immediately. So it still happens today. I've been invited to speak on housing panels and so forth, and I'm like, well, that's not my area of expertise oh yes but you live in a house I mean that's as basic as it gets because political correctness has just gone oh we just need to have a black fella or a woman or you know a lesbian or whatever and so people are still in the in the case of ticking boxes and um I've just become very good at saying 
that's not my area of expertise, but let me recommend somebody for you. And I think it is a huge pressure and I get it every day, every single day, particularly when you have, you know, I have an opinion, obviously, but it doesn't mean my opinion is always correct. And I much prefer to defer to somebody who has knowledge in that space. But it's, it's people, it's sort of like, oh, oh, well, you know, Aboriginal, you'll know this. Well, no, I don't know. You don't know. You, you don't know the hit. I'll say, like, tell me about the gold rushes in Hill End. And people might know that. Well, how am I supposed to? You don't know the last 200 years of history. Why would I know 40,000? So no. <laughs> we have different expectations on others than what we have on ourselves. Absolutely. If you place the same expectations on yourselves as you place on us, you would pick most white fellows who just keep their mouth shut. Mm. because it's, it's a lot to expect. And I think Aboriginal people are incredibly generous and giving because we want to live in peace. We want to live in a respectful, unified, and I say this as a, as a generalisation, obviously, but speaking for the people within my own circle, we, we, we want good things to happen in our communities. We want to work together and we are often the ones that make the trade-off and bite our tongues because we know we're looking at the end result. We're looking at the gain at the end, and that is, you know, whether it's funding or whether it's getting people on board, you know, we, when it comes to reconciliation in this country, the heavy lifting is meant to be done by non-Indigenous people, but I can tell you it's largely done by us. Yes, yeah. That is all from this segment of the interview with Dr. Anita Heiss. If you would like to connect with her further, you can always check out her website, which is anitaheiss.com. And as I mentioned at the top of the podcast episode, if you are local to central Queensland, you can head on over to the Busy Women Inc. Facebook page or to my business Facebook page and click on the events tab, which is where you will find all the details for how you can meet Anita and how you can chat with her as well on the 17th of May when she visits Yapoon. Thanks all. Are you finding this content useful? Imagine having Naomi in your corner all year for monthly one-on-one coaching sessions, unlimited email support, and business resources. Visit naomiarnold.com forward slash coaching for details.